You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. I know I'm prone to say this. I tend to repeat myself a lot. Uh, No other place I'd rather be. And right here. So it's good to see you all. It's good to worship with you this morning. As you can tell, we're back in our sermon series called Carols of Christmas. Uh, this is our Advent sermon series where we have been looking at the truth found in Christmas carols, or you might call them Christmas hymns, if you will. Part of the thought process for doing this sermon series is because we sing Christmas carols you know, all the time, you know, especially during the Advent season. And so part of the thought process is why not talk about them? Why not address what we're singing? Let's see the reason why there are songs that we use and perhaps others that we don't use. For example, I've pointed out a few songs we don't sing in previous Sundays. Uh, we do not sing here at Redemption Hill, Frosty the Snowman. You might hear it on the radio or whatever, but we're not going to sing it here. Uh, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas, another favorite one. Deck the Halls, and this terrible, terrible, terrible song that's played during Christmas, Baby, It's Cold Outside. Like, come on. <laughs> um, you know, here at Redemption Hill, we push back on the mockery that is made of Christmas. We push back on that nonsense. A way that we push back on the mockery in what we sing in particular is that we sing about true stories about God. We sing about God using language that is consistent with Scripture. We sing, I think, in a distraction-free environment. Now, for the record, these Christmas lights were not put up by us, (laughs) you know, put up by the school, you know. But on the whole, we want to provide a distraction-free environment. When I say distraction-free, I'm not talking about a a baby crying. That's not what I'm talking about. What I mean is that worship is not a concert, right? Worship is not a concert. When we worship in song, when worship in song becomes a concert, it becomes a distraction. When the words we sing are not in line with Scripture, that can also become a distraction. So this is me personally. I tend to think of music in like three broad categories. These are just my categories. You might have a different set of categories. There are good Christian songs that speak truth about God. We sing some of them on Sunday morning. We sing them moments ago, right? That's great. Another category I have is there are wholesome songs that tend to be neutral, There are Christian artists and non-Christian artists who sing wholesome songs that are not explicitly Christian, but maybe they just speak about life. Like, you know, my dog died and my truck broke down and, you know, all that kind of stuff. You know, that's life, right? Those are just wholesome. And then there are songs that are just clearly negative. I would imagine some of you can spot a negative song from a mile away. You hear it and the message is not wholesome and perhaps it's even anti-Christian. Here at Redemption Hill, we sing truth. We sing truth. 
We sing truth to one another. It's like, <clears throat> excuse me, in worship this morning, I almost wanted to turn around and like face each other and sing to one another as we worship and praise God. We sing truth to one another and that is our act of worship. All that to say, I hope this sermon series has perhaps made you more aware or perhaps stirred your heart to sing good songs that are truthful. In particular, because it's Advent, the truth about the birth of the Savior of the world. So we're going to be looking at another song this morning. If you get the liturgy, um, you know it's Go Tell It on the Mountain. May have gotten a video of a very, very bad rendition of that song from somebody in the church last night. <laughs> and it was cringeworthy. Uh, we're not looking for cringeworthy today. Uh, but it is, a, it is an amazing song that has tested time. So let me pray and then we'll get into today's message. Heavenly Father, I need your help this morning. Um, ultimately, as we look at this precious carol, we want to be led back to your word. Help me, O oh Lord, to be faithful to what you've spoken through your word. I pray for the dear folks in front of me this morning. May they receive what you have to say to them. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you be working on their mind and their heart. We pray this all in the only name that we can pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, have you ever heard of the saying, ignorance is bliss? Ignorance is bliss. The idea is that if you do not know about something, then you just don't need to worry about it, right? If you're not responsible for, for, you're not responsible for information you don't have, if you were to say to me, I'm going to rob and loot a Walgreens, I am now responsible with, for that information. I have the opportunity to call the police or not. But if I was never told about the attempted robbery, then no, no moral blame can be placed upon me. I am perhaps ignor ignorantly bliss of the details. I understand why some people like live by this motto. Knowing information can be stressful, and sometimes it's not appropriate to know some types of information. <clears throat> I could give countless examples of not sharing information with my children for their good. But there are times when you learn new information and you have to act upon the information provided to you. You are compelled to do something with the information. If you witness an auto accident, what do you do? You pick up the phone and you call for help. If you find, if you find out that a dear friend is pregnant, like the courtesy, courtesy thing to do is send that text, pick up the phone, call and say, congratulations. So how do you think the, the shepherds responded when they were told about the promised Messiah was born that very day in the city of David, Luke 2, 11. But it was not only the information that they needed to respond to, but it was the manner in which they were told. Like, let's be honest, not every day an angel appears and has a conversation with a person or a group of people. And by the way, I believe angels still do that. It's not normative, but I believe that. But it's not every day, right? The angel, in conjunction with what we see in Luke 2, with the heavenly host, obviously created a very unique scene for the shepherds. 
It's safe to say the lowly shepherds who faithfully attended to their duty to care for sheep were no longer ignorant of when the promised Messiah would be born into the world. It was that day, and now they had to act upon that information. I can just imagine if it was like, maybe I'm the shepherd and there's like four of us around, be like, whew, did y'all just see what I saw? Yeah, but I saw that. Okay, what do we do? Well, you got to do something. You just can't stand there. You were just told that the long-awaited Messiah has come. And they gave a location. Bethlehem. I just wonder if that, you had that one guy who's like, I'm not going. Like, what are you talking about? Not going. Surely we're going. We must act. After the angel and the heavenly host left the shepherds, we read the following occurred. Luke 2, verses 15 to 20. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem, because that's where they were told Jesus was born, and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They went with haste, so they obviously responded quickly, and found Mary and Joseph and the baby laying, lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the sayings that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, right? They obviously left, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. I want you to note the initial response of the shepherds. They were moved by what happened to them in the field, and rightfully so. And so they did go to Bethlehem. They relayed the words from the angel to Mary and Joseph. Then they left Mary, Joseph, and baby Jesus and glorified God for what they had seen and heard. Luke 2, verse 20. After verse 20, we do not hear from the shepherds. We don't hear from them. We do not know what they did when returning to their homes and community. Scripture is silent. But we know what they should have done. We can surmise from other places in Holy Scripture what the shepherds should have done when they went back to their community, when they went back to their homes. In addition to praising God, they should have been telling others that the Messiah has arrived. And this, my friends, is where this carol, Go Tell It on the Mountain, fills in the gap. Go Tell It on the Mountain is the appropriate response for anyone who believes that the Messiah was born over 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem. Now, the history of this hymn is humbling and frankly inspiring. As you know, we've been looking at the history of all these hymns and trying to see how these songs were created and developed and why is it that we have a particular rendition of it in front of our eyes today. It is likely that this hymn in part was sung by black slaves before the Civil War. 
let's put this in the context for a moment. Chattel slavery in the United States is an ugly blemish in the history of this country. It's an ugly blemish to say the least. I don't need to, I shouldn't have to explain it, but I will because it's dehumanizing. Chattel slavery allowed for human beings to be bought and sold by other human beings. Chattel slavery allowed for people to be the property of other people. So it is difficult to imagine the suffering and pain that a black person in the American South was going through. We know there was suffering and misery because of the many songs that were sung in the cotton fields about their pain and despair. That's the context. Nonetheless, amongst an extensive library of songs about the plight of slavery comes a hymn of hope. From the cotton fields came a hymn that captures one of the most significant events in human history. You know, it would be easy to, ex to excuse a person who lived in slavery or was in a concentration camp during World War II. It'd be easy to excuse that person if they said, God's dead, right? How could a good God allow for the atrocities of evil to take place, right? Those questions still persist today. But what about the person who steps back and sees the remedy for their plight? What about the person who sees the remedy to his plight is a baby born in a manger in Bethlehem over 2,000 years ago? I think he is a remarkable person. That kind of person inspires me. We do not know the author of Go Tell It on the Mountain, but shortly after the Civil War, a man named John Wesley Work, W-O-R-K, he discovered this, this hymn. Work was a highly educated black man, unusual during that time, who lived in Nashville, Tennessee, and was a choir director at his church. Work was a scholar and a musician. One of the things he devoted himself to was the rediscovery of old spiritual songs that his ancestors sang during the days of slavery. The verses were wildly, wildly different when he discovered Go Tell It on the Mountain. The chorus seems to be the same, but not the verses. For example, here's verse 1 of what Work found. When I was a seeker, I sought both day and night. I asked the Lord to help me, and he showed me the way. Like, I read those lyrics. I'm like, those are fantastic lyrics. People were singing about seeking after God, and after God saves, he shows them the way. I'm like, let's sing that on Sunday morning. Now go tell it on the mountain, all that God has done for you, right? John Wesley Work was rediscovering good stuff. Well, rediscovering good hymns and singing them was like in the family genes because Work's two sons, Frederick and Work II, or John II, excuse me, took this song, rearranged the lyrics, and gave music that sounded more like an anthem. It took one more generation of works to see this hymn in its current form, at least the one that you probably are most familiar with. John Work III, a Juilliard graduate and a, and a history music student, made a few more changes. During the Great Depression, John III created new verses. 
Now, we don't know what inspired the new lyrics, but after the song was published in 1940, the hymn became a mainstay in American culture. Since then, Go Tell It on the Mountain has like been a staple in our Christmas carol catalog. Now, before looking at the scripture texts that are the foundation underneath this hymn, I have one more point to make. Every week during this sermon series, I have pressed the point that these carols represent a connection to tradition, right? Generally speaking, the first three carols were connected to Western culture, which I think is great, by the way. I think Western civilization has given us a tremendous output of Christian resources. It is a tradition that is deeply connected with Greek and Roman culture, which, is, which that culture has given us some of the greatest theologians that the church has ever known. So what about Go Tell the Mountain? What is the traditional connection here? There is a connection, but it's different. And the connection is actually more profound. The connection lies with this simple fact. When we read this in Holy Scripture, the gospel is for the nations. A person who sings this hymn and takes the words to heart is connected through Christ to other brothers and sisters. Listen to this from Galatians 3, verses 28-29. There is neither Jew nor Greek, the apostle Paul says. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs to the promise. Wayne Grudem, a theologian, comments on this passage. And I quote, Galatians 3.28 simply says that we have a special kind of unity in the body of Christ. Our differences as male and female are not obliterated by this unity. Rather, the unity is beautiful in God's sight, particularly because it is a unity of of different kinds of people. Let me say it frankly. I am more connected to a Christian black woman living in chattel slavery in 1805 than I am with a white male living in the 21st century America who is not a Christian, who is not a follower. I am more connected to that person. I'll make my point more clear. My relationship with many of you is more significant and profound than my relationship with the family that I was born into because of Christ. And I love my family. I love my biological family. I really do. The most significant connection with men and women in the past and present is through Jesus Christ, which is why we can sing, go tell it on the mountain with people from various cultures, from different nations. So for the remainder of my time, I want to answer two simple questions that we can ask about this hymn. These questions about this hymn are directly connected with Holy Scripture. As I keep saying, we're going through the back door to see God's Word. First, I want to ask the question, what did the shepherds learn in Luke 2? Right? What did they learn? We looked at this passage two weeks ago, but I left a few things on the table. I focus a lot on the angelic perspective, but now I want to consider the scene from the perspective of the shepherds. What did they learn? Second question. Do we have the courage 
to join those who were slaves and proclaim what we have learned. Remember, the chorus of this song has always been intact. Go tell it on the mountain. But first things first, what did the shepherds learn? Here's verse one of our hymn. While shepherds kept their watching or silent flocks by night. It's like you read the verse, it's like you're kind of tempted to start singing it. <laughs> but I don't, want, I don't want to do that to you. Behold, throughout the heavens, there shone a holy light. You can tell in verse one of this particular hymn that we are singing straight scripture. That's straight scripture, right out of Luke 2, verses 8 and 9. Here it is. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. So shepherds in the field watching sheep, check. Just another day in the sheep business. But then the glory of the Lord descended upon these faithful shepherds. The glory of God is the holy light that we sing about. I probably should answer a follow-up question from a couple weeks ago. What is the glory of God? We, we sang it. We sing it all the time. We see it in Holy Scripture. So what is it? What would it have been like for the shepherds to witness the glory of God? Glory is God's splendor and brilliant beauty that shined upon the shepherds. Uh, deceased uh, theologian R.C. Sproul said, quote, The glory of God refers to who God is and not what he does. I find that to be really helpful. It's who he is. He is glorious. According to Sproul, when the term glory is connected to God, it is his state of being, not necessarily his actions. Therefore, the mere presence of God brings glory. What did the shepherds learn when the angel arrived? They knew that the divine had entered their presence. Like, it, like I was trying to, you know, you read the Bible and you kind of put the scene in your own head and you can try to recreate it in your own head. Then you start thinking of like examples and, and metaphors to help explain you know, what the shepherds perhaps were, were witnessing at that time. And I, and I did that with this particular scene. What would have been like? Like, is the glory of God like meeting the most powerful person in the world and being in their presence? Right? The mere presence of that person like just does something to the room. And, and like, here's the deal. The more I thought about it, the more I realized there, there is no comparison. There's none. Like I, I like to use a lot of examples in sermons. I don't have one for this. There is none. There are other examples in Holy Scripture of God's glory being declared. For example, we know the heavens declare the glory of God, right? Psalm 19. But what the shepherds experienced seemed, seems unique. As the hymn suggests, God's glory was like a holy light putting the shepherds into this reverential fear. It's like, it's not a fear of like my life, but it's a fear of like, oh, something amazing is happening right now. They knew something unique and amazing was going on. What else did they learn? Accompanying the amazing display of God's glory came a message. Here's verse two of this carol. The shepherds feared and trembled, again, straight scripture, when low above the earth rang out the angel chorus that hailed our Savior's 
birth. Like verse 2 is where the truth bomb drops. The shepherds went from trembling fear to praise because of the truth bomb dropped by the angels. The truth is that the long-awaited Savior has arrived. Here's Luke 2, verse 11. For unto you is born in this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now why Bethlehem though, right? King David is from Bethlehem, but Bethlehem was not a big deal throughout the region. Your typical small town in Iowa is a kind of equivalent to Bethlehem. But that's kind of the point. From a no-name town comes kings. In particular, the king. Another point is that Bethlehem is one of the many signs pointing to a promised Savior. Many signs that we read about in Holy Scripture even more specifically in the Old Testament. It is one of the many signs that force a person to take the birth of Christ seriously. I mean, suppose a person wants to be skeptical of of Christ and Christianity. In that case, they have to explain how a bunch of writers and prophets who existed hundreds of years apart from one another and before Christ, living independently, wrote about in unison, about the birth of Christ. Like, they're all pointing to the same event. Uh, Several weeks ago, I took you to the prophet Isaiah. Now I want to read from you the words from the prophet Micah. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Ancient days. The reference of ancient days is a reference about the future ruler being an eternal king. Like Similar language is used in Daniel 7 and in Isaiah 43. The one born in Bethlehem is quite literally, quite literally born before days were. That's what ancient days were, before days were. That is ancient days. The verses of this hymn, along with Luke 2, tell us what the shepherds learned and what we're learning with them. If you are a Christian, the message from Luke 2 has a profound impact, should have a profound impact on your life. You need a Savior because you have sinned against God. You have rebelled against God. But praise be to God that in the fullness of time, Galatians 4.4, a Savior has come. He has come to turn the world upside down. If the gospel of Jesus Christ has changed your head, your heart, your life, the question then becomes, how do you respond? How do you respond? A reason why I love this hymn so much is because it does more than teach us true things about God, which I've already explained is very important. But the chorus is a call to action. As the work brothers... Frederick and John II attempted to do, the chorus is an anthem for all Christians. I mean, you all know it. We'll sing it here in a minute. Go. I mean, stop on that first word. Go. Okay, now do what? Tell it on the mountain. Funny joke. Growing up, 
I thought this, I didn't look, look at the lyrics. I thought it said, don't tell it on the mountain. <laughs> then I finally looked at the lyrics and I'm like, said, oh, it's the exact opposite. We go tell it on the mountain over the hills and everywhere. Go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born. Let's ask perhaps an observational question here. Why a mountain? Mountains are important in the Bible, but I suspect another reason for referencing a mountain here. The encouragement and challenge from this song is for you to proclaim the birth of the Savior from a place where everyone can see and hear you. Our confession of faith helpfully says this in chapter 23. Let me just read it for you uh, real quick. Chapter 33. The great aim of our Lord God is the magnification of his glory for the fame of his holy name. His mission in this fallen world and a primary means of demonstrating his glory is the redemption of sinful persons who are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. A couple more sentences. These redeemed persons are united not only to Christ, but also to one another in local churches. Already talked about that. The church is the community of the redeemed, and as such is called to proclaim the glories of our Savior. Go. We are to go tell it on the mountain. Not only do you proclaim the transformative message of the gospel on the mountain, but it's also, as we sing, over the hills and everywhere. So what's going on when you speak the message of Christ in a most obvious way? Several things are going on. First, people are witnessing what faith in the birth, crucifixion, and resurrection of Jesus Christ has done to your life. Like, you are testifying. This is what God has done. And now I want to tell you. You see, uh, cr Christian, you are a peculiar person, it says in 1 Peter 2.9. You are peculiar. We are peculiar people up on the mountain that the world looks at, and sometimes they say, huh, that's a peculiar person. And you're like, yeah, I am peculiar. Let me tell you why. You are peculiar because you've been forgiven because of Christ. You are peculiar because you no longer fear death because of Christ. You are peculiar because you have eternal life because of Christ. You are peculiar because you no longer need to receive the condemnation from your sin because of Christ. You are peculiar. That's what people are seeing when you're on the mountain proclaiming the gospel. You are peculiar because you do not need to fear the things of this world because you have peace because of Christ. You are peculiar because you do not suffer in vain because God uses everything for your good. You are peculiar because you're not a victim, but you are victorious because of Christ. You are peculiar because you actually do not live this life alone, but you are connected to every other believer through Christ. In other words, you are a part of God's family that consists of other sons and daughters. That's the kind of person that says, go tell it on the mountain, and then says the thing, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. What people see in you while standing on the mountain is not a perfect life. I could testify to that. But it's a life shot through with the grace, mercy, and love of God.
those standing at the base of the mountain see Christ in you. Here's a second reason for being on the mountain. You are there out of obedience to Christ. I had Andy read this particular passage from Matthew 28 for a reason. I want to come to it right now. Listen to what our Lord Jesus said to his disciples before ascending to heaven. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority, like I just paused there, some authority, a little bit of authority, 90% of authority, 99% of authority, nope, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them also to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age, the end of the age being the second advent of Jesus Christ. Obedience to Christ is to pursue a holy life, but it is also being a part of fulfilling this great commission text. When you go tell others on the mount about the birth of Christ, you are doing your part to disciple the nations. When you go tell others on the mount that Jesus Christ suffered and died to forgive sinners, you are discipling the nations. When you go tell others on the mount that Jesus Christ walked away from the tomb, he walked away, folks, he walked away. When you tell others that, you are discipling the nations. When you tell others on the mount that Jesus Christ, in bodily form, is currently ruling and reigning over the entire universe, you are discipling the nations. And when the Holy Spirit works a miracle in the hearts of the people at the base of the mountain, there needs to be ongoing discipleship to baptize and teach the commands of Christ. Like if I were to preach a message specifically on Matthew 28, you know, verses probably 16 to 20, I would tease out the two verbs that I just mentioned that deserve most of our attention. The two verbs are make disciples and teach. Perhaps that's something I'll do at a future date, but I'll just say this for now. Christians have had this silly debate in the 20th and 21st century about do we, do we focus on sharing the gospel, evangelism, or do we need to focus more on discipleship? It's a silly and unbiblical debate because the answer for all time is both. We do both. We go tell the gospel from the mountain to children and adults. We go tell the gospel from the mountain to the nations near and far. We go tell the gospel from the mountain because when people respond to the gospel, as I already said, we need to be ready to disciple. This Christian hymn, Go Tell, tell It on the Mountain, makes a point that sometimes gets neglected during Advent. Christmas is all about evangelism and discipleship. I mean, perhaps, it's an idea, we should have ornaments on our Christmas tree that says, you know, disciple the nations, <laughs> or teach the nations, something to that effect. I want to end with a message for two different groups of people in light of you know, Luke 2, Matthew 28, verses 18, 19, and 20, and what we sing, the words that we sing with Go Tell It on the Mountain. Two groups. The first group of people count themselves among the people of God. You believe that God, um, you believe that God used the voice of the prophets to speak promises. 
you believe that the promise of the coming Messiah has been fulfilled in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. You, my friend, are now responsible for doing something with that information. You're responsible now. Christians should not take the gospel and hide it by burying it into the ground. Christians do not leave it to pastors to be the ones to share the gospel. I certainly need to lead in that, 1,000%, right? But Christians don't lead it to a few people who have a, quote, job, right? No, not at all. Our carol does not say, pastor, comma, go tell it on the mountain. Nope. The statement's not qualified. Evangelizing and discipling the nations is a all-hands-on-deck mission. Now, how do you go tell it on the mountain? Well, it begins by speaking. It's asking God, perhaps for some of you, for the courage to speak it, to tell others. For some people, I understand it's intimidating, right? I get it. Perhaps you say that you're like the introvert. Okay. Again, when God tells Christians to proclaim the message of the gospel, if I'm being very frank, your personality type is not taken into account. Like your strengths finders test does not matter. Your disc profile doesn't, your Enneagram number does not matter at all. My general opinion of personality tests aside, there can never be an excuse not to obey God. The verse where we read, make disciples and teach in Matthew 28, 18, is in the imperative in the Greek language, which means in English, they're actually commands. My encouragement and challenge for you, Christian, is to go tell the gospel from the mountain. Go do that. And it takes place in many different ways. It takes place in your workplace. Some of you who go out singing carols, that's what you're doing. If you're singing good songs saturated with scripture, you're telling it on the mountain from door to door. However you do that, do it. The second group of people, perhaps you remain skeptical of the gospel. right? Perhaps you are uncertain about God. If that is you, let me just say this. You're always welcome here, 1,000%. Redemption Hill is a church where you can ask questions. Redemption Hill is a place where you can wrestle with life's most pressing and vital questions. But let me say this, you too have to contend with the information that is placed in front of you. What do you do with your sin? Legit question, what happens when you die? What if God does exist? What if this whole Christmas story is true? What if? My prayer for you during this Advent season is that God will have mercy on your soul and reveal to you his grace and love, and he will give you the gift of faith to believe in the baby born in Bethlehem over 2,000 years ago. And you will join, join me and others up on the mountain proclaiming the birth of our Savior. I, I got to level with you of all the hymns that we've looked at thus far. I probably thoroughly enjoyed this hymn the most, if I'm being honest. I love the other ones, right? I love this one. There's a simplicity to it, but don't let the simplicity fool you. In the simplicity is profound truths. I am grateful for the original author, whoever he or she might be, and 
perhaps one day I'll thank that person in heaven. I look forward to thanking perhaps the work family. I'm grateful for how they looked at God's word to create lyrics and put music to lyrics that allows me to now proclaim an anthem that speaks about my faith in the Savior, Jesus Christ. I am thankful that you and I now have the opportunity to climb the mountain. No, we're already on the mountain, friends, and we get to proclaim that Jesus Christ has been born. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.